Alrighty, you should have gotten a packet whenever you came in. Um, we are going to be talking tonight about the Seder meal, and I, I'm going to explain a little bit of that in just a second, but uh, remember we're in a kind of a broader study, really diving a lot into the Old Testament, and tonight is a miniature break from that, but not really. We have just talked about the Exodus coming out of Egypt, the, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, and we just came away from uh, two, a few weeks ago the ten plagues, and then last time we talked about the tenth and final plague, and then the Passover meal that was called to be celebrated there, and some symbolism that's communicated in that Passover meal, and how that sort of relates to Jesus. Well, tonight... I wanted to extend that just a little bit further because, well, we're about to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, but let's just pull back the curtain. We celebrate Resurrection Sunday every Sunday. So you, I think overemphasis in the calendar is probably to our detriment in some cases, but we, we're celebrating Resurrection Sunday, and this season is going to provide us some you know, things in our culture that are going to point to Easter, they're going to point to the Passover, they're going to point to celebrations and festivals, both in the Jewish calendar and the Christian calendar. And so I thought it was worth taking a closer look at how that Passover meal was most likely celebrated during that fir the first century. And obviously the reason that that's important is because Jesus celebrates this Passover meal leading up to his time on the cross. And so it's worth diving into and seeing what's going on in the meal and what Christ is doing in his celebrating of the Passover meal with his disciples. Now, lofty plans, okay? I had really kind of wanted, I would love to have had visual illustrations as we walked through the different elements of the table, but it's a time thing, right? It just got away from me and uh, didn't have it. And so what we're going to do tonight instead is just really, you notice that on your packet and your handout, there's just a few blanks on the first section. And then we get straight to the Seder meal where we're going to just walk through pretty much step by step as much as we can determine about how that first century meal would have been celebrated. And so, so first we're going to do some preliminary things in this section that is just has the header Jesus and the Seder. Now, Seder is uh, the, uh, the Hebrew word, and it means order or procedure. And so the, the Passover meal is often called the Passover Seder. So the, the Passover procedure, the Passover order. So it's an orderly event, and it, and it has uh, obviously some strict procedures to it. And so what happens is the word Passover just sort of drops off of it, and people just refer to it as the Seder meal. So it's just the, the meal with order and procedure. You know that one. Um, and so it, it, it takes on that kind of shorter name. Now, believe it or not, there has been a significant amount of debate as to what's actually happening with Jesus and his disciples in the celebrating of this meal. And the reason that there's some debate, so here, here's kind of just, let's pull back the curtain again on kind of how some of this debate starts to come up. Um, the biblical text will make a claim. And conservative scholars will go, well, that's what it means. <laughs> Liberal scholars will usually go, does it? <laughs> and conservative scholars are going, yes. And they're going, well, prove it. And so then there's this back and forth, and so then there amounts to th this debate. In this case, the debate is created for at least some pretty decent reasons, 
it, it's, it, the text sort of gets a little bit confusing. We won't dive into all of this tonight because here's what I found out in doing this some time ago. When you start diving into the day Jesus was crucified and determining what day that was, all of us are under the assumption it's Friday, right? Everybody, I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure most people in here are going, I think it was Friday. We celebrate Good Friday. Well, read the arguments for Good Thursday and read the arguments for Good Wednesday. And I've even read arguments for Good Tuesday and Monday. And all of them sound really convincing. And so you quickly get into that and you will spend your entire life being sucked away on trying to determine what day it was based on the biblical account. So we're going to kind of steer a little bit clear of that and really focus on just and try to get to the, the actual meal. So there's a lot of debate on how this is, is going down. The crucifixion, we are sure, happened on Nisan 14. Okay, remember, Nisan 14, what is Nisan 14? If you're here last week, you're, you'll, you'll probably, you may, you've slept since then, but you may bring this to mind. What is it? Yeah, and this, this is the point where they actually, the day where the, the, the lamb is slaughtered, where uh, the people get prepared to celebrate the Passover, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be Nisan 15, where at nightfall, they would, what, what we would call, Nisan, we would call that the 14th evening, all right? The sun's already gone down, but we would still call that the same day. They would call it the next day, and that would be the start of the Passover meal. So that evening, they would celebrate the Passover meal. So the, the lambs would be slaughtered on the, in the daylight as the sun is kind of going down in the daylight on the 14th. Well, that is when Jesus is crucified there when all the lambs are slaughtered. And the, the curtain is, we talked about this last week, but the curtain is ripped from top to bottom. And so they're trying to get Jesus off the cross because they're having to go celebrate the Passover, which happens to be a high holy day. What does that mean? You remember? You know what, what that means? What is a high holy day? So a high, a high holy day would be the celebration of a feast, but it happens to be on a Sabbath day. So it's one of those times, I guess every seven years, where the, the Passover comes back to a, a a, sab- a, a Sabbath. So we know the year Jesus died, it landed on a, a Sabbath day. And so they're getting ready for both the Passover meal and the Sabbath, which occur on the same day. And so they're trying to get Jesus off the cross. So we know it happens on Nisan 14. And, um, and, and then it's going to go into that Friday, that Friday evening. Let's call it Friday just for argument's sake. That Friday night, they're going to celebrate the Passover feast. And so we know Jesus died on that day, but this brings up a really tough issue because we also know he celebrated the Passover with his disciples when? The night before. And he, he told them, I want to celebrate the Passover with you. He told them on a number of occasions, let's, let's get it ready. And so there's this confusion in the text is, what is Jesus celebrating here with his disciples if Passover is the following evening, that's sort of confusing. How is it that he's having Passover there? Now, in Scripture, seems to support the fact that that Jesus had a. Oh, sorry, sorry. Scripture seems to support that the Last Supper uh, was a Passover meal 
that there are elements that are, that are happening there in Jesus' meal with his disciples that give you an indication that, yes, this is a Passover meal. They're dipping their food, they're dipping their bread in bowls. Their bread uh, seems to be unleavened. It's around that time of the, the season, and so we, it's with good cause that it, we would think it's, uh, that it's unleavened. There's a lot of cups involved in the meal. We know of at least two that are there in Jesus' meal. Um, there, so there's a lot of those things going on in the meal that would give you an indication that, yes, it's a Passover. In fact, the text will even call it a Passover meal. So it, it seems like, yes, it is a Passover meal, but the text, the biblical text seems to also support the Passover meal was yet to come, that it, it was going to happen. Take a look at just a couple of these passages here in your verse list, Matthew 26, 17 to 20. He says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the, what is it? The Passover with my disciples. So it's right there in the text. He just says, I'm going to keep the Passover. And he said, uh, Luke 22, 15, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And so it seems like all there in the Gospels, there is the Passover. But then we get to this interesting thing here, um, John 19, um, 31, I believe is the text that I'm trying to find. Oh, no, no, 1828. It's a couple back. 1828. He says, then they led Jesus. This is while Jesus is being tried. This is before he was crucified. Okay. So he's already had the meal with his disciples. He's being tried now. He says, then they led Jesus to the house of Caiaphas, from the house of Caiaphas, to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So it was still to come for them. So there's a, there's a both and happening here, clearly in the text. Now, the problem with some of this is we don't know, we don't have a lot of documentation as to why Jesus' meal was called a Passover. We just don't. But I'm, my suspicion, and I'm not alone in this, but my suspicion is we have, this, we, we have Thanksgiving, but we also have Friendsgiving. You know what Friendsgiving is? What's Friendsgiving? It's better. <laughs> you don't have to deal with family. <laughs> What's Friendsgiving? You've never heard of Friendsgiving? It, it's where you, it's before Thanksgiving. You get all your friends together and you celebrate Thanksgiving. With, yeah, Blake is a picky eater, but, but, but I like Thanksgiving food. And, but anyway, you, 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 you bring your friends together and you celebrate Thanksgiving. Typically it's Thanksgiving food, but it's with your friends because you know what's going to happen on Thanksgiving. Where are you going to be on Thanksgiving? With family. Okay. Now the Passover had to be celebrated within the walls of Jerusalem. So the people from Galilee and Hitherto and yon, they're all bringing their lambs to the temple. Remember Josephus told us in like 70 AD that there were some 270,000 lambs that were sacrificed on the, 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 on the year 70 AD and the year 70 AD at the temple. And so you've got this, a lot of people making these pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Well, some of the disciples have family. We know Peter has family. We know 
some of the other, we, we assume some of the other disciples did as well. When Paul mentions the fact that he doesn't have a wife and Barnabas doesn't have a wife, it, he seems to say that like he and Barnabas are a rare exception amongst the disciples and the apostles. And so we know they have family. So the, my suspicion would be that it makes perfect sense that their family's going to be in town for the Passover and the, their expectation in going there. Remember, they don't get what Jesus is talking about with his whole death thing. Like it's not clear to them. And so I'm sure they're under the assumption we're going to celebrate Passover, the Passover meal with our family, but we're having a friend's giving, a friend's Passover, and it was celebrated before. But those kind of meals never made it into the historical writings because I think they were probably rarely celebrated or they were celebrated just sort of offhand and by some. Now, I can't prove any of that. It's, it's speculation. But I think it's probably pretty reasonable as to why Jesus would celebrate a Passover meal before the day and that it would also be celebrated after he was crucified. Um, makes sense? Yeah? Okay. But Jesus did call it the Passover. It is called the Passover in the text. And a lot of people, a lot of liberal scholarship will come in and say, well, Matthew and Mark and Luke, they're coming from this tradition, and John is coming from this tradition, and they crossed their wires, and they didn't talk to one another, and so there you go. Now they've got... I, I think a lot of that's just hogwash. I mean, uh, John, it, 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 by all appearances, has Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel in hand. He knows what they were. Like, they were widely circulated. That we have a copy of them is evident of the, uh, evidence of the fact that it was circulated widely. So it's not that John didn't know. It's not that he didn't have information. But he, he also presents this Passover almost kind of like you should just know this. You know, don't, don't you know? Timothy. Yeah. Yeah. So the point is that there, there's some evidence, and, and they've even found archaeological evidence that there were two different calendars that were, that were sometimes being used, and that may play into some of, those, some of this. I think it's probably just a lot more informal. And I, my, just my, my suspicion is that the meal that Jesus celebrates with them is a Passover-type meal, but it's, just very, it's probably a lot less formal, my, my assumption. Um, you know, go ahead. don't know, to be honest with you. Um, I, I just, I don't, I don't know. I know that if the meal, if what Jesus celebrated, and I'm not sure if this is going to answer your question, but I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. Um, the, the night Jesus celebrated the Passover meal would have been what we would call Thursday night. Let's say he was crucified on Friday. It would have been a Thursday night, and it would have probably been six o'clock, let's call it. Okay, so sunset, and it's, it's like six o'clock. Um, I don't know, uh, of like the tradition saying you like stay up, they have to stay up all night. I'm not, I haven't read that anywhere, but that, that doesn't mean it's not true. I know the disciples, most of the disciples did stay up that night because obviously Jesus gets crucified or uh, captured, captured, arrested and tried. And the disciples are 
for the most part with him, or at least at a distance, and they're kind of keeping watch on this. And I think, and some of them even flee, and we're not sure where they all go, but they, they kind of end up at least around the scene, and we know Peter's very close to it. So a lot of them that night are staying up all night. I'm not sure if that's, if that's tradition that they do. Yeah, it, it may be. But he, he, and here's the other thing about the Seder meal. So uh, I, I may have made references. Oh, I do. This is the next one. And actually, let me, let me talk about this, and then I'll get back to kind of what she's saying. Um, so though the, I don't have any more on the, sli- on the slides just yet. I'll get some pictures in just a second. But um, the, the Passover meal is you know, this, this really vital tradition in Jewish history. And it's, um, it's celebrated, by all accounts, it's celebrated most every year until you get some lapses in where they lost the law and they, they totally went astray. And there's obviously some captivity that goes on. But it's, it, you can tell it's an important uh, feast to celebrate. At the same time, there's very few references, at least biblical references, as to how they celebrated it. So there's just not a lot of a writing that tells us, well, what went on? But we do know that there was some difference in how it was originally given to Moses and a lot of like pomp and circumstance that has sort of made its way into the Seder meal by the time we get to Jesus. So there's a lot of things that have evolved and a lot of things that have changed. And if you look at Jews now, the way they celebrate it, there's a whole new cup at the table, a whole new cup of of wine at the table. There's a lot of new uh, nuances to the the meal. And I don't know them all, but there, there are a lot of new things that they've added to the meal since uh, Jesus' day. So you, you get a book on the Seder meal today that's talking about how Jews practice the Seder meal now in, in this year. And that's not exactly how Jesus is going to celebrate it. Um, the table, for one, is all different. Uh, the, the, you know, the Japanese tables that are down to the ground, they're going to lay down at a table that's like 18 inches tall, whereas obviously now it's celebrated in a different fashion. Um, the, again, there's a whole new cup of the table. There's lots of different things. So where we get our information for Jesus' Passover meal or Jesus' Seder meal is from a rabbi who wrote about the meal in the year 200 AD. So just think about this for a second. Jesus, let's put him somewhere around the year 33. Let's say it was April 3rd, 33 AD. This rabbi is writing 170 years later nearly. I mean, how much has changed in American life since the Civil War or the American Revolution? I mean, that's a, that's a good distance away. And so, but it seems as though it was common enough. Um, you know, you've still got Ro- uh, Romans pretty much everywhere at 200 AD. And so there's still some, uh, probably some, a lot of similarities. So we get a lot of our information about Jesus' Passover meal from him. I don't know why I have this in my hand. I don't need it. Um, so, uh, when we go through the Seder meal, let's just sort of walk through uh, at least approximately what we can figure out really happened in the first century. Um, so there's the first, there's the ceremonial foot washing. We talked about that last week. The guests come in and a servant in the house is going to wash the feet of the attendees, of the people that are attending the, the meal. Now this is significant, and I, the reason I'm pointing to this is because Jesus is going to do that at the, at the Last Supper. He's going to take off his robe and he's going to tie it around his, his waist. And he's going to present himself as the servant that's there to wash the feet of the disciples. This is why Peter pushes back. We talked about it last week. This is why Peter pushes back and says, no, 
you're not going to do this to me. And he's like, yes. And he's saying, I'm, but you're the Lord. I'm the servant. Wash my whole body. <laughs> Wash everything. Make me clean, you know. And so, but Jesus is presenting himself as this uh, servant that's coming to serve and not just to be served. And now it is unclear. The next thing that would happen in the process of the meal is the ceremonial hand washing. The Jews did this. It was a common practice in the first century. We know that very well. But the reason that we're suspicious that maybe Jesus didn't do this is because he didn't seem to be a fan of hand washing. And he says that in, uh, in Mark 7, 5 to 9. You can look at that there on your packet. He says, the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? They're, they're eating meal before they have the ceremonial washing. This is common in just about any meal, not, not least of which would be the Passover. And, um, and so Jesus kind of basically calls them a, a bunch of wicked hypocrites. And so we, we're, we're not sure. It does, is Jesus just not a big fan of hand washing? <laughs> like, we obviously know why he's saying it to them, that they, they keep these traditions, but they're, they're not vital, and you find a way to negate the things that are commanded by God. And so, but we don't know if he just made this a practice, that, he just, that they just didn't wash their hands at, at, at all eating. Maybe so. Now, as they come in and they gather at the table, there are, uh, each participant is seated at the table, and they have an assigned seat. Each participant has an assigned seat at the table, and each participant has four ritual wine glasses. Now, in a, in a Seder meal, wine is going to flow like water. They drink a lot of wine. And, but there's, there, is not, there is non-ritual wine, and there is ritual wine. And the ritual wine is not to be drank. It's only to be poured into those four cups, and it will be drank at certain times during the, past, the, during the Seder meal. The rest of the time, wine, other kind of wine, non-ceremonial wine, can, can just, it'll flow like water pretty much. Now, um, as they drink this wine, there will be a point in the meal where the wine, the non-ceremonial wine stops, and they can't drink it until after the meal is over, Okay. So, but that those four cups are for ceremonial purposes only. And you'll see in some modern Seder meals, I think, where they just have the one cup and they just fill it four times instead of each having four glasses. But I think it accomplishes about the same purpose. Um, so you've got the four wine glasses. You have an assigned seat. You have a, a charoset, which is like this nut fruit paste. It's like a, it's a paste um, is what it is. You have unleavened bread. Uh, you got some vegetables. Usually that's going to be celery. And then you have a red wine vinegar, which we think in the first century is mostly red wine vinegar. And now they also will use salt, uh, like salt and vinegar. And, um, and, and so you'll have all of these sitting at the table. Now, each one of them has a purpose in symbolism. So the, the uh, charoset is that, that fruity paste. It's meant to emulate or remind you of the mortar that was used for the bricks that they were, you know, in captivity. The herbs that are bitter, the, the red wine vinegar and things like that that are bitter are meant to remind you of the bitterness and the harshness of slavery that the children of Israel were, uh, were in captivity. And then the vegetables, there's some argument about the vegetables as to what they actually mean or what the significance was. A lot of people think it was to emulate the hyssop that was dipped in the blood. So you get the red wine vinegar and then, then it was, you know, smeared on the door 
doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. But regardless, you've got these, and they have certain purposes as a reminder. All of this is built as a reminder of the exodus, of the, the, the night, that fateful night when the tenth plague hit, and they had to eat with their staff in their hand. They couldn't wait for the bread to rise, and they had to eat quickly and be ready at a moment's notice to get up and take off. And so all of the, the night is meant to remind you of those things. Um, so now in Jesus' day, again, the table would have been about 18 inches off the ground. And um, so they, they, uh, they wouldn't have any kind of chairs or anything like that. It would just be pillows on the ground, and they would just be laying on the ground pretty much in a reclined position, like a couch potato position, sort of, as they eat and sort of just relax. That's kind of the, the picture. Now, if you want to look at like a traditional setting today, um, you've got, watch this, Dun, da, da. That's a laser pointer is what that is. Okay, um, if you'll look close at this, you'll see there's at least the one wine glass and a second. Looks like everyone's got two there at the, at the glass plus, you know, a glass of water because you, you need, everybody needs water. Um, you have each plate, and I didn't pick this because the plate says Michael. I just, that was fortuitous. But, uh, but you'll notice that the, the plate um, has a, an assigned person and each each plate would have an assignment on it. You'll see some of the, the celery there. This is a modern one, so it's going to be a little bit different. They'll actually use chicken in modern ones, like neck bone of a chicken, uh, or a lamb shank uh, will be there as a reminder. Uh, there'll be celery. There'll be dipping sauces. The, um, and I've also got the uh, carouset, which is, um, it looks kind of like peanut butter. Not, not Richard's peanut butter. Richard uses powder peanut butter. I've never even heard of that until you. But it's like a, kind of like a peanut butter, it looks like. It's all mashed together as like a nutty paste. And that would be used for dipping as well. Um, so you kind of get a picture. Now, the head of the family is going to sit at the, the, the beginning of the table, the head of the table. Um, obviously, the picture we just showed you, I just showed you is a round table, but um, in like a long, imagine a long setting, there's the, the person that's sitting at the head of the table. And it's pretty clear in Jesus' Passover meal that Jesus takes that head position. He seems to be officiating the entire meal. And all the things that he's saying, or I should say all the things that he's doing, are at least consistent with what the head of the, the feast would do. He's officiating it as, it, as it were. So he's probably sitting at the head of the table. And it, it may also be that Judas is sitting in the first position to his right. And I'm going I'm to talk about this in just a second, but um, that, there, there's a significant thing that happens here uh, in the, in, when he starts passing around this, the, going through the Seder meal that Judas does where he uses to identify uh, this person. So um, each wine glass has a purpose. So let's say we've got four wine glasses out here. Each wine glass represents one of the verbs in Exodus 6, 6 to 7. There are four different verbal statements in Exodus 6, 6 to 7 that are Jesus's, I mean, Jesus, God's, God's promise to the children of Israel. And so each one of those wine glasses represents one of those promises that they are bringing to mind that God is going to do for the children of Israel and that he did do in rescuing them out of the, the land of Egypt. So that first cup comes up and it's the, the first cup of ritual wine is poured. Each person has it, but it's the first cup of ritual wine. It's, it's poured. And the first verb of Exodus 6, 6-7, or first verbal idea of Exodus 6, 6-7, is recited by the head of the table, the father, in this case of a family. 
He says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Okay? So, no doubt this is probably going on in the Last Supper. We don't have any of this in the Last Supper, you know, details, but this is most likely what they're going through. So he drinks the first cup of wine. He kind of holds it up and, and says the, the, the verbal idea out of Exodus 6, 6, and then he drinks the wine and everybody else drinks the ritual wine as well. Now, after each cup, it starts kind of a chain of events of things that will then happen. It's procedure and it's order, right? So after that first cup, they go to the next thing. Um, the head of the house will dip the carpus, which is the, the bitter herbs, and it's traditionally that lettuce and celery and that kind of those, those kinds of things. They dip them in the salt water or the vinegar, uh, red wine vinegar. And so he'll dip the herb, watch this, he'll dip the herb with the chief guest at the, the meal. So let's imagine like a family doing this. You'd probably have the patriarch of the family, the oldest male in the household, sitting at the head of the household, and most likely the next patriarch to step up will be sitting at his right, and they'll dip the stuff together into the bowl as it's then passed around. And that person is sitting in a position of honor and of recognition at the table. And so um, the reason that I think this may be important is because of what we see in Matthew 6, uh, 26, 23. If you look on your verse packet there, Matthew 26, 23, he says, um, Jesus answered, because they're, they're saying, well, no, none of us will ever betray. Who's going to betray you? And he says, uh, is it I, Lord? And he says, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. So the only one that would have dipped his hand in the dish would have been that person sitting at the first, if they're celebrating exactly like this. Now, things could have changed, but it's with, obviously what happened in the meal was that Judas and Jesus both dipped their hand in the bowl at the same time. And this is probably part of the meal, we would assume, and what we're told. And so then it, it, it passes down. Now, after that happens, the patriarch recites the history of Israel will tell the, pretty much the whole history of Israel. Now, the reason that this is important, I think, and there's, there's reasonable, with reasonable certainty, we think what's going on in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is stoned, the account he gives is the Passover meal script. That what he says is, as the head of the family, this. And you can imagine, now just think about that for a second. Here is a guy who represents a sect that's being persecuted. Here are Jews standing around to stone him. And the account he presents is one they've all got memorized. It's one they recite every year. It's an insult to their intelligence, right? That's, that's kind of the way that's it's felt. But of course, Stephen's explanation is you should see that this points to Jesus. If you don't, I can't help you. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and what does Stephen say at the very end of his stoning? What is, what's that? Yeah. Yeah. So he uses that as, an, as, a, as that script, as an example, not just of the fact that it points to Jesus, but the fact that the Jews in the history of Israel, have always pushed against the prophets. 
They've always killed the prophets. It's, it's, and then what do they do? Well, they kill Stephen. Um, and they have to repeat it every year. I mean, it, if, if that's what's happening in Acts 7, Dan Wallace was the first one that brought this to my attention. Dan Wallace, is a, is a, he's a Greek scholar. He's brilliant. And uh, when there's a papyri found anywhere in the world, that's who they call is Dan Wallace. And he was the first one that brought this to my attention. And he, he's a professor at DTS. And, I, you know, I don't, I'm sure he's, he has his reasons. I didn't explore those reasons. But um, if that's true, that, I mean, I think that's amazing. It's, a, it's, it's certainly an interesting way of reading Acts chapter 7 and Stephen's account before he's stoned. Um, so after the, the, they re, the head of the table recites the history of Israel, then the first two halal psalms are, are sung. Now, on Passover evening, Psalm 113 to 118 will be sung that evening. Now, I preached some time ago from one, Psalm 118, and it's, it's the last halal psalm, and it's a, pic, the picture is of a conquering king coming into uh, the gates, and he's asking for the gates of the temple to be opened. And he's sort of gaining, it seems like, this chorus of people behind him saying, Salvation has come! Hosanna in the highest! You know, and that's where the chant comes from. Hosanna is come in the name of the, in the highest, the son of David. And so here, uh, those, those psalms play in heavily not only to G, the picture of Jesus that we get in the New Testament as the son of David, but also in uh, the, the Passover meal. And so they would sing the first two psalms, uh, Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. And so then the head of the house will pray over the second cup and he'll read the second verb, Exodus 6, a verbal idea, Exodus 6, 6. I will deliver you from slavery to them, to the Egyptians. And so this is where things uh, get kicked up a notch, Emeril Lagasse style. So after that second cup is taken, they will break the bread and they will only use two-thirds of the bread at first. Now, there is some discrepancy as to what exactly happened in the first century. Um, what has been more, we think, we don't know if it was rec- just recent tradition or if it goes all the way back into the day of Jesus, but they will take that, the, the, the one-third that they're going to not eat at the time, and they'll wrap it in a linen cloth, and they'll put it away. And nowadays, it's even a game for kids. They'll hide it in the house, and it becomes like an Easter egg hunt sort of deal where they go, and the kids will find it and celebrate. They found it, and then they'll, they'll open it. But So we're not sure if they wrapped it in the first century or if they just set it aside and didn't, didn't use it for the time. But the point is they'll use two-thirds of the matzah bread, roughly two-thirds of the unleavened bread that they're, that they're eating. The one-third of the bread typically, again, wrapped in a linen cloth, put away for the end of the meal, and the host has, you know, broken the bread. He, he then takes the bread and he dips the bread into uh, another, uh, the, another dish. Um, and it's the, uh, I think it's the cheroset, uh, the, the paste, di- the fru- fruity kind of paste. Dips it in that with, again, the guest of honor. Now, why is this important? It's important because of the account in John. Look at, look at John uh, 13, 26. Jesus answered... It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Okay, so it seems as what Jesus is doing is he's dipping it and he's giving it to the guest of honor. And that may be just a difference in the tradition. We're not sure. But he, he dips it and he gives him the morsel of bread. The reason why that is important is because a lot of people will point to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. Remember what we've already said about the, the night Jesus was 
crucified and captured and how he's celebrating Passover meal in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Or was he in John, right? The Passover meal is yet to come. Well, a lot of people will use that as further evidence when they look at what's happening here. Wait a second. He told Judas that he would dip with the, dip in the bowl with him at the same time. Well, now in John, it's dipping a cracker, uh, the matzah bread and giving it to him. Well, which is it? And the answer is, it's both. He, he says, I, whichever one I dip the, uh, the w- dips with me in the bowl is the one, and that's Judas. And then which one, w- the one I dip the bread and give it to him, it's him. So it's two different events that are taking place in the meal. Both point to Judas, who, you know, I, I don't know, I can't say with certainty because the text doesn't say whether or not Judas was the guest of honor at the meal. He took the, the seat of, of the highest honor or not. But it sure does preach well that the, the, traitor, the traitor was the honored guest. You know? I don't know. I wouldn't say that from the pulpit. I wouldn't say that this is what happened. But, and I hold it with an open hand. But, man, that is powerful if you think about it. So if it's true, wow, what a thing. If not, well, you know, oh well. Um, so you take it with a grain of salt. Uh, so anyway, they've got the, th- this is clearly happening in the meal. We see that in, in John 13, 26. Now, here's where things get kicked up yet another notch. <laughs> Bam. Um, so after the meal, the third cup is poured. So the meal has pretty much commenced, uh, or it, it's, it's or not commenced, it's, it's over. And um, the hidden bread is then brought back out, back to the table. Table. And all the, the participants at the table are going to recite the post-meal grace. Now, this gives us our clue. When we look at Jesus' Passover meal, it's that right there, the post-meal grace, that gives us the clue as to what he's doing when he breaks the bread and what, he's do, what cup he's drinking from. That's, that's what gives us a clue, okay? So uh, Matthew, let's see, uh, they, Matthew 26, 26, if you look at your passage there, it says, um, I lost it. Did I, did I put it on there? Oh, yeah, it's at the very end. Uh, now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Uh, Paul also basically kind of reaffirms the same thing in the verse just above it in your packet. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, um, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So that's probably what we think is the post-meal grace that's happening after the meal. And that, that is the bread he's breaking. Which bread is he breaking? The one that was put away and hidden during the meal. He brings out and he says, this is my body. And we obviously know that Jesus' body, and again, here's another thing that we, I wish we had solid details on, but it sure does preach well. <laughs> that Jesus' body is obviously crucified, is wrapped in a linen cloth and hidden away for three days and comes back from the dead, which is a really just a powerful image. And here he's saying, this is my body uh, that's given for you. Now, then he takes the cup. This is the third cup because it's immediately following the bread and recites Exodus 6, 6, which is the third verbal idea, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm 
and with great acts of judgment. That is just a powerful image, knowing that what God is about to do as Jesus is taking the cup and saying, this is my blood which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That God is about to redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. The interesting part of this is that Jesus is playing the, both the role of the true Jew, the sinless true Jew, and Egypt. Think of that for just a sec. He's playing the role of Egypt. Of course, we were Egypt. We're the sinful ones. We're the ones that, were, that should have been judged with mighty acts of judgment, and Jesus is playing the role of both true Jew and Egypt as he's being punished for our sin. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So he drinks the third cup, and, he's, and so in this, in this Passover meal, in this Seder meal, what Jesus is doing is repurposing it He's, he's giving it new life. He's resuscitating it. Well, the Passover meal would have died as soon as Jesus died and rose from the dead. It's over. It's done. So he takes the most crucial elements of the Passover meal and repurposes them for the church for, until he comes back. Do this in perpetuity. So now every time... You think of this Seder meal. Every time you celebrate this Seder meal, this bread that is hidden away and is brought back, think of my body that's broken and put in a grave and came back from the dead. And every time you drink this cup, think of the fact that God saved you with a mighty hand and outstretched arms and great acts of judgment. The rest of it disappears. <laughs> Those two elements stay for the church for all time. All right. Questions about that? Go ahead. I hope I can answer it. <laughs> is, is that um, why when Jesus prays in your name, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your be done? It's like the cup of wrath. Yeah. There's a, the, the idea, the notion of the cup has a, just a, a plethora of things uh, in the Old Testament, uh, uh, connections, let's just say, connections to images. A big piece of that is the cup of wrath, and that's what he's talking about, um, the, cup of, the cup of wrath. And specifically, he's about to suffer the wrath of God through the Roman government in the most crucial form, or the most uh, ruthless form of, of, you know, death. But he also tells the disciples they're going to drink that cup too. So it's not only the cup of the wrath of God. We know Jesus absorbed that on the cross. Um, there is the cup of, of punishment for his sake. And that's a, that's a kind of cup as well. It's, a, it's sort of the cup of, like, of bitterness and harsh treatment, if you will. Um, that's kind of what it is. But yes, largely in the Old Testament prophets, the idea comes up in Isaiah and Ezekiel is this, the idea of the cup of wrath. We see it in there. We also see it come back in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 16, where God is telling uh, the angel to start the wine presses, where they will tread out uh, the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. So that idea of wine in the, cu in the cup 
becomes the idea of the fury of his wrath. And yes, Jesus is, is taking it. Yes, he's praying, um, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Um, there's also an idea of the cup of blessing. There, so there, the, the cups have a, have a lot of different connections, but that's the primary one, I think. Uh-huh. Any other questions about that? Yeah, well, yeah, he, and he's saying, he's saying, I am the defining event for all mankind. These are elements that are going to point back to me, right? So really that Passover meal, that, that, that crucial elements of the Seder meal are, are really, to be honest with you, designed for the church all the time. For the first like 300 years or, or maybe more, the church celebrated the, the Lord's Supper Every Sunday. Every time they gathered together. Because think about this for just a second. A worship service. What's the sermon supposed to do? Glorify God? Teach? What else? What? Okay, yeah. Which is another form of teaching, right? Another form of correction and teaching. Tell us what God has said. That's how it does all those things that you're talking about. That's how it teaches. The not, uh, I don't know who said that, but uh, Paul prays for the church in Ephesus that they, they grow in knowledge and insight of God. That's the knowledge that he wants them to have, knowledge and wisdom of him. So it teaches, because, it glorifies God because they are his words, right? We're reading his words and we're talking about his words. And then what do they point to? Jesus. If you hear the, a Jesusless sermon, get out. That's not a sermon if it doesn't point to Christ. Okay, so if the sermon points to Christ, what does the table do? Points to Christ. So the, the sermon is really pointing to the table, which is going to point you to Christ, right? The whole sermon is building up for that. So the, the first hundreds of years, the church celebrated the Lord's Supper every Sunday, because that's what we're here to do. In the worship service, that's what we're here to do. We're coming together. The first thing we do in our worship service is a prayer of adoration, because we're and two songs typically that follow are both adoration songs. They're both songs that are going to speak of how great God is, how magnificent God is, because we realize you come here at nine o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock in the morning, whatever time you get here, and you don't, none of us, are like are ambulatory. <laughs> We're still half asleep. We're still, you know, maybe we fought in the parking lot or whatever, and we're coming in, and we need to be reminded of who we're worshiping. But then we start to get to, well, but wait a minute, we also need to be reminded of who we are in the worship service. And think about the fact that we bring a lot of sin to the table, so let's, let's take a moment to confess that before the Lord. And so we have a moment where our song is really pointing us to reminding us who we are, who Christ is, and leading us to a moment of confession of our sins, which then gets us to the, the last, remembering the fact that in Christ's death, we're pardoned. So that fourth song before I preach is typically going to be a song that reminds us of the fact that we are set free in Christ 
and that if you bring your sin to him, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. We don't want to dwell on the fact that we have sin and never think about Jesus. Well, then that sets us up nicely for the sermon, which is designed to point us directly towards Christ. And what would follow that would be the table where it reminds us of the fact that Christ has died for us. And this is the reason that we're set free. Does that make sense? So there's a, there's a purpose to it. And there has to be a purpose to it. But that's the reason for the first many years they celebrated the Passover every, or they celebrated the Lord's Supper every Sunday. When did it happen? Every quarter. You know? When it started being every quarter? What's that? Well, it is because they didn't have access to it. That's right. It, it was a little bit before the Great Depression. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a long, it's a long time. It really is. It's not 300 years, but we, we lose track of it after 300 years. We don't know exactly what their worship services look like, but there's good reason to believe they did it every Sunday in the early church. And then um, in like the 1700s, 1800s, there, was, there weren't preachers everywhere in America. So you had like, you had one building maybe where you had a Baptist, Baptist that would meet there and the Baptist preacher would come to town and then he would leave. And when he would come to town, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then they would just do family worship. between. Then the Methodists would take over the building and a Methodist circuit riding preacher would come in town and he would preach. And so it would just kind of go like this on a circuit. And there were some churches that obviously didn't operate like that. But the Southern Baptists started picking up this tradition of once a quarter Lord's Supper. But that's hardly historical of what's been traditionally celebrated. Um, now, all that was free. Here we go. Um, so... The, uh, after all of that, the fourth cup of wine is poured. This is getting towards the end of the meal and, um, and blessed by all. And then the father r- recites the fourth uh, ver- verbal idea from Exodus 6, six and the end of 6 and the beginning of 7. It says, Then I will take you as my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And of course we have the completion of Jesus' Seder meal where he... Become, he, he's basically promising that through his blood, the third cup, God will then take us and make us his people, and he will be to us our God. This is a, should call to mind Jeremiah 31, and really that whole run through 31 to 34, where he, he's talking about, uh, I will take your heart of stone out, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will write my law on your heart. You, I will be your God. You will be my people. All of that idea is packed into that fourth cup. They're anticipating the Messiah. They want the Messiah to come. And to be honest with you, after, you know, whatever it had been, whatever, 1,400 years, I'm sure some of them had lost hope. And little did they know that one day a Jewish carpenter would stand at the head of their table and would proclaim that this is his blood and that they are going to now be God's people. Um, through his death and, and resurrection. The final halal psalms are, psalms are sung uh, Psalm 115 to 118, obviously culminating in the king marching up to the temple and demanding that the priests let him in as the priest and king, not just the king. Did the head of the household memorize all this, or did all those in attendance also memorize all this? Yeah, it's hard to say for sure, but we would assume that it was pretty well baked into their memory. Um, you, you, yeah, you can imagine... The Psalms 113 to 118 are on scrolls. So they're not, not everybody has access to scrolls. Um, 
So the assumption would be that they did memorize these, and they look at how they memorize them. They memorize them by song. They sung them. And that, that kind of helps. You sing things, and you, you memorize it. We do, with our kids, we do catechism that way. We sing the catechism, and they, it's easy for them to memorize it. So, yeah. Oh, it's one of the sorest spots in my life. You know why? You know why? Because, because I, I worked with, I think I talked about him last week. I worked with a guy who was from Israel, Jewish, and he told me uh, on like a, it was like one right before Easter, and he said, uh, I was going to invite you this year to our Seder meal, and, but we're going to be out of town. And I was like, <laughs> and then I quit working there and we kind of parted company and haven't seen each other. And so it was, we had built up a good relationship and I, I would come up to him and I'd be like, today's topic, Psalm 53, explain it to me. And so we would just stand there on the floor when it wasn't busy and just talk, and talk about Psalm 53 or various other things. And, um, and, but that was my one regret of life. You've went, been to a Seder meal. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. You know, they just had lots of tables cool. Up, and I was invited by the, this person from the church. It's amazing. That is amazing. It really, they went pretty much, like you said, there was a lot of flowing of wine. Yes. Uh, yeah, you'll... You, <laughs> 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 you know... Uh, <laughs> I mentioned uh, that they'll, like nowadays, I don't know, did they have a fifth cup? I don't think so. Okay, because now, were they trying to celebrate it like first century? Are these Messianic Jews? No, no. Were they Christians or were they Jews? It was a Catholic church. Oh, it was a Catholic church, okay. Possibly yes and no. Okay, yeah. Yeah, a little bit of everything. You know, now if you... There was one Christian there. Oh, <laughs> um, they, they nowadays at most Seder meals, and it's hard to know how prevalent this is practiced, but at least what's pretty common nowadays is that one of the chairs at the table will be open and will be left open for the duration of the meal, and that is Elijah's chair. And in addition to the four cups of wine, they'll have a fifth cup sitting in front of Elijah's chair that will remain full of non-ceremonial wine, and no one will drink it. The only person that's allowed to drink that wine is Elijah, and he represents the inauguration of the Messiah. And so when he, the, the expectation, the hope is, one day uh, Elijah will come in and sit down at the table as a secret guest. He won't reveal who he is, that he'll sit down at the table and he will drink the cup that only he can drink, and, uh, and that will inaugurate the Messiah's entrance. Well, you know what Jesus says about John the Baptist, right? You remember this? The disciples are asking, he's like, well, he is Elijah, because he's inaugurating the, the Messiah. Um, now, so there's a strong connection there, but then once Elijah, if Elijah doesn't show up, which he won't, um, you just spoiler, spoiler alert, uh, but they take that fifth cup, and they go outside because they've left the door open. So they walk outside, they take Elijah's cup, and they pour it on the ground. And there's some sort of recitation of some sort of, I guess, like invoking God's wrath, like almost an imprecatory, uh, imprecatory psalm um, given toward the, the people that would persecute the Jews, that God would bring, pour out his wrath 
bring it again. There's a cup of wrath. They would pour out his his wrath on the people that would persecute and and hold us down. And so it's kind of anticipating that one day Elijah will come and, and we won't have to do this anymore. It'll inaugurate the, the Messiah's reign. So there's still, even in that, there's still a lot of uh, opportunities with Jews to, I think, you know, share the gospel or get to, get to the gospel. In those ways. Jeff, do you have a question? Yeah. There are a couple of things, too, that will happen, not only nowadays, but, di- but probably did happen then, which were the, the father um, calling out, asking questions of the youngest, the, young, the youngest person, typically the least at the table, uh, which would be the youngest child or whatever, and asking them catechetical questions like, uh, why, why are we, what, how is this day unlike any other day? Well, um, and the answer is, well, mo- most days we eat leavened bread, but this day we eat unleavened bread because the, our forefathers didn't have a chance to let, let the bread rise, you know, and so th- there's kind of these catechetical questions that perhaps were there in the first century, may- maybe not. Go ahead, Jen. Yeah. And the wine and the cup, and not that we believe that it's actually the coming yeah. and the body, but that there's something important happening that I am submitting myself to this mm-hmm. meal in that moment. Yeah. So it's my response at the end of the serving. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I'll say when we do the Lord's Supper, come and welcome to Jesus Christ as we take, that, that is exactly what she's talking about. It's you, you're welcome at the table. You're welcome at the table. And I think there's so many powerful images about the Lord's Supper and not only the Lord's Supper, but obviously the Passover, um, but Jesus telling his disciples, you know, at, at the end of the meal, like, I won't drink again of the, of the vine until you're with me in the kingdom. Then we'll drink it again. I think that's awesome. <laughs> that is incredible. And every time I think about that, it, it um, gosh, um, to just to, <laughs> to imagine that you know I, I hope to be officiating Lord's suppers for you know fifty years, but to think that one day I'm going to sit at the table and he's going to officiate, uh, that'll be a great day. You know, just to think of Christ being the one uh, once again at the head of the table, distributing the elements and you know tasting with billions of people. That's amazing. Anyway, Timothy.
And it's, it's, yeah, it's when, it's when he breaks the bread, right? He, he, when he breaks the bread, they're like, oh. Well, I hope that you won't look at perhaps our Resurrection Sunday celebration the same way again, maybe. I don't know. And certainly that you wouldn't look at the Lord's Supper the same way again. That there's so much going on here um, and uh, that, that I think is, is really powerful and profound. And, and just that we're welcome at the table is an incredible idea. Um, and what, a, what a, a joy that is to be welcomed at his table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are. It doesn't even seem to be enough to say that, but how grateful we are that you have, through the blood of your Son, welcomed us at your table. Uh, We long for the day when in the kingdom we celebrate this meal and it's revived yet again for all eternity, this time as a meal celebrating the inauguration of the kingdom, the consummation of the kingdom. What a day that will be. And we long for it. We want it. We desire it. All of the sin and all of the things that so easily entangle us and frustrate us, may they cause us to ultimately look toward you and toward that day. We won't have to deal with this any longer. But all will be made right. All the injustices in our world will be rectified fully. That no unclean thing will ever enter it. That you will keep watch over the gates. What a day that will be. We look forward to it. Come, Lord Jesus. We know that in the meantime, we count it as salvation for as many days as you tarry. And we know that there are people, as Timothy reminds us, whose eyes have yet to be opened. How will they believe unless they're told? So we go out into the world and give us the boldness to proclaim and tell so that they may hear the gospel and their eyes will be opened. They may see the truth and that they may come to to Christ as their Savior. Give us the boldness and the courage to do that for the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.